very, very quickly add my welcome to Shane's. If I haven't met you, if you're here as a guest or for the first time, uh, my name is Owen, the minister in charge. It's great to have you here with us. I get to lead the church with my wife, Becky, and uh, our great staff team. Uh, one final thing from the, the booklet, which I wanted to mention, not earlier, but now, is that, as you'll probably be aware, uh, this coming week, uh, it, we are having a week of prayer and fasting in the life of the church. So that means Monday to Friday, we are going to be fasting together as a church family. I suppose that one of the first things I wanted to say is, how are you going to be doing that? How are you going to join us this week uh, as we fast and pray? There's two things um, to, to note. This Wednesday night, here at 7.30, we're going to have an extended worship night and we, as a part of our, our week of prayer and fasting. And we want to invite everybody to come and to join us. And we're, going to, we're just going to worship. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us and to speak to us and see where that takes us. And then on Friday night, we're going to be closing out our week of prayer and fasting with a meal, with a huge meal like we did the last time we did this back in May. So there's two things happening this week that we would love you to join us for. A great meal, great celebration at the end of the week, and then on Wednesday night we're going to be meeting for an extended time of worship and uh, of ministry in the Spirit and, and listening to God's voice. So um, my, my challenge to you is that you think about fasting some, from something. Uh, fasting is essentially about, it's not just about giving up something, but maybe it's about taking up something for the week. For example, uh, this is the last day this week that I'm going to have one of these. I'm ditching it for a dum-dum phone. And I'm going to, so if you, if you, sorry, my bad. If you WhatsApp me, I won't get it. Uh, and I don't have, I won't have email on my phone either. I'm going to, I find it, a, the, I find my smartphone such a huge distraction and I'm going to try and fast from it and from screens and from some food uh, this week as well. But what, what about you? How do you think you are um, meant to celebrate this week, mark this week of prayer and fasting with us? Maybe for you it's the same. Maybe it's your phone. Maybe it's screen. Maybe it's screens. Maybe it's Netflix. Maybe it's maybe you want to do smoothies instead of meals, one part or two parts of the day or whatever it is. But my challenge to you as the pastor is to really think and pray about how you're going to fast with us this week. It'll be great to gather for worship on Wednesday night, and it'll be even better to eat more together on Friday night. Okay? If you've got any questions about fasting, um, and the values of it. Come and speak to me um, later. Uh, so if you, you're probably all aware, uh, this morning we find ourselves on week six of our eight-week series on prayer, which we've entitled When People Pray. And it's all designed essentially to help us to reflect and explore together as a community more on the power the purpose and the significance of prayer. I can remember, still remember when I was sitting down, I was sat down and I was planning the this, this season out, the series out, and I was thinking, what are the kind of things that we need to really need to talk to, and what are the things that maybe we can talk to another time? How do we prioritize? We've only got eight things, eight times that we're going to be together talking about prayer. And I suppose in the middle of all of that, one of the things, the clear contenders that rose to the surface was that we sit at some point in this eight-week series and we look at unanswered prayer together as a community and its relationship to suffering. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look and think together for the next 30 minutes, 
maybe even a little bit less if I really stick to my notes. There's a good chance. There's a good chance. And we're going to look at this topic together of unanswered prayer and how it relates to suffering. But for us to be able to do that well, there's three things that we have to keep in mind, okay? And the first is this, is that it means that I'm going to need to take a slightly different approach to some of what I'm going to be teaching this morning. And it'll probably maybe feel for some a little bit clunky. It's going to feel like we're driving in a different gear. So the first half of the talk, and splitting my sermon into two parts, the first half is going to be maybe a little bit more of what we're used to. We're going to be looking at a passage from Matthew's Gospel, uh, from a time in Jesus' life where he was in a place called Gethsemane right before he died. And we're going to be looking at what Jesus says and does in that moment, and what we can learn from that in terms of how we Uh, might live out of or live in that place of wrestling with unanswered prayer. And with that, we're going to be thinking about what it means to be honest. What does it mean for Christians to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with the world around us? I mean, nearly every pint I've had with somebody in the pub and they find out what I do and they say, well, how can God let this happen? Invariably, there's always those sure and confident questions that we get asked as Christians. So we need to figure out what does it mean to be honest with ourselves, honest with the people who are asking us questions, and even more importantly, honest with God about where we're really at with this stuff, okay? Secondly, we have to be realistic, okay? All we've got this morning is 30 minutes. It's just such a huge topic, I can't possibly speak to every single aspect of this. So either we never talk about it because we just can't give it the right time, or we open the windows, we air the room a bit, and we say we're going to commit to covering what we can when we can, okay? So that's the second piece. And then thirdly, I'm conscious, and I think it's probably important as we say this, that I say this last, is that when we think about this topic together, there's nearly always, and importantly so, potential pastoral implications that come as a result. Anytime I teach on a topic like this, I run the risk of trampling all over the holy ground of somebody else's experience. I run the risk of offending you. I run, I run the risk of, risk of being maybe challenged and said, well, you're just oversimplifying that on. I run the risk of, of offending you in some way because I don't exactly know every step of your journey. And if I do that, I need to say in advance, I'm sorry. Okay? So I need you to extend some grace to me. Okay? Will you do that? And I need you to extend grace to one another. Because the reality is, is that it's often when we talk about this stuff, our, our, we, each of us will have different experiences. The people in our lives will have different experiences. We'll carry our own thoughts and opinions on this issue. Of what it means to wrestle with unanswered prayer and to face suffering. And the idea of sitting down for 30 minutes to hear it talked about is already 30 minutes too long. Some of us will have pain, uh, disappointment, anger, anger with God, anger with the church, and we just need to be really careful of how we speak to one another afterwards this morning. Is that okay? So grace toward me as I fumble along, and grace towards one another. Can we just 
commit to that this morning? Is that okay? Thank you so much. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in the life of our church. Thank you for the gift that it is to have each other and to be able to be here together in this space. We just pray, Lord, that you give, give us courage, give us wisdom, give us the discernment we need, insight. Speak to us this morning. Open our eyes to see you afresh. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that we've been learning over the last five weeks is just how powerful prayer can be. I hope that's one of the things that you've been able to take home over the last number of Sundays as we've taught into this. Just how powerful prayer can be. But, and there is a big but, prayer can be an incredibly painful thing at times too. And we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. We just shouldn't. The temptation within the church, and I've seen this again and again over the years, the temptation is that we just, we only ever tell the stories of breakthrough. We only ever tell the testimonies of when an area of breakthrough has happened, where there's been an answer to a specific prayer, where we've seen healing and wholeness and freedom come. But what about when we don't see that? What about when we don't see that? What about when things don't change? What about when breakthrough doesn't come? Prayer doesn't always work in the way that we need or want it to. And that can be incredibly painful for us to face. Now, this is potentially where I'm going to rub somebody up the wrong way. Maybe I've already done that, and I just don't know it. Maybe it's best that it stays that way, right? Because some Christians, they just can't go there. Forget about thinking about unanswered prayer. Teaching on unanswered prayer, it's just, it's just, it shouldn't be done. It decreases our faith, and it's counterproductive. But I just completely disagree with that sentiment. I don't think being honest or authentic or real quenches the Holy Spirit in any kind of way. I think our theology needs to be rooted in God can handle any of our negative emotions. He wants to hear it all, every thought, not just some, not just when we're up, not just when we're sure, not just when the way ahead is clear. He wants to know what we're going through. He wants to hear it all. And I hope that you hear that. I'm not saying that prayer doesn't matter. I'm not saying that prayer doesn't work at all. I just hope that you can hear me say that and hold that in balance while we open up the other side of things. It does matter. Miracles really happen. Breakthroughs really do come. And we can see long and lasting change in our own lives and in in our circumstances. Poor Daniel. And uh, we, we can really, really struggle. But there's times where we can see the lasting change and healing in our lives and that we long for because of prayer. And what we've been learning over the last five weeks is that prayer has the power to change the world and to affect generations of people. I really do believe that. But we also need to be honest about when and where prayer hasn't worked. 
We're called to hold these two things together on our journey of faith. Breakthroughs will appear alongside of heartache. And maybe like you, like me, have experienced where you've prayed and prayed and prayed and contested and contested over something and you haven't seen God do what you wanted him to or felt he should. And that's just devastating. Really, really difficult to experience. So if that's you this morning, if you're in that place, if you've been in that place, it's okay. It's okay to wrestle, even important to wrestle with God, honestly and openly, in and from that place of suffering and unanswered prayer. Prayer is both powerful and it can be at times painful. And we can see evidence of this in the text I want us to look at this morning. If you've got your red Bibles open in front of you, maybe uh, open it to Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to be reading verses 30, 31 to 46. Now, I can tell you straight away, this is going to be different to the Bible that you've got in front of you. I'm reading from the message translation this morning. Maybe you've got it on your phone, so open that up. But you should still be able to follow along with your NIV, which is the Red Bible in front of you. I've chosen to read a different translation because I just love the way that Eugene Peterson comments on this text. Matthew 26, starting at verse 31. Then Jesus told them, before the night's over, you're going to fall to pieces because of what happens to me. There is a scripture that says, I'll strike the shepherd and helter-skelter, the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I, your shepherd, will go ahead of you, leading the way to Galilee. Peter broke in, even if everybody else falls to pieces on account of you, I won't. Don't be so sure, Jesus said. This very night before the rooster crows um, up, up the dawn, you will deny me three times. Peter protested, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. All the others said the same thing. Then Jesus went with them to the garden called Gethsemane and told his disciples, stay here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he plunged into an agonizing sorrow. Then he said, this sorrow is crushing my life out. Stay here and keep vigil with me. Going a little bit ahead, he fell on his face, praying, my father, if there is any way, get me out of this. But please, not what I want. You, what you want. When he came back to the disciples, he found them sound asleep. He said to Peter, can't you stick it out with me for a single hour? Stay alert. Be in prayer so you won't wander into temptation without knowing you're in danger. There's part of you that is eager, ready for anything in God. But then there's another part that is as lazy as an old dog sleeping by the fire. He then left them a second time. Again he prayed, My father, if there is no other way than this, drinking this cup to the dregs, I'm ready. Do it your way. When he came back, he again found them sound asleep. They simply couldn't keep their eyes open. This time he let them sleep on. And he went back a third time to pray, going over the same ground one last time. 
When he came back the next time, he said, Are you going to sleep on and make a night of it? My time is up. The Son of Man is about to be handed over to the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go in. My betrayer is here. Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom to, as we reflect on these words. And in the same way you gave Matthew insight to write them, we pray that you give us insight to reflect on them together. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So this is, of course, the story of Jesus suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went on to die and to be crucified. And we're told, the text tells us that Jesus is in great turmoil. There's so much going on in this passage, but I want to highlight just five things to us that I believe will help us as we wrestle in this place of unanswered prayer and suffering. And the first thing to notice here is how intentional that Jesus is. How intentional Jesus is in this moment of suffering with his friends in particular. We're told that he's overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. And yet, two incredibly important words for us in the New Testament. And yet. He intentionally takes his friends with him into his place of grief and asks them for their support. And I think that this is really important to highlight this because repeatedly, again and again over the years, I've seen a pattern developing within the church. And often what happens is when there is a moment of unanswered prayer, when there is a moment of suffering, more often than not, what happens is that people withdraw People pull away from community because they're in so much pain. Now, I can't criticize that. That's not the point I'm trying to make. I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that that isn't the only option available. But I think a lot of the time people feel that church is really the only, you you can only be in the community if you're sure all the time. There's only room for us in the church if we are really, really sure all the time. We're up all the time. We have the answers and all of the, all of, all the clarity, that all that we need, and we never doubt. So when people find themselves in a place of doubt, find themselves in a place of suffering, what they invariably do is they withdraw, they, they pull out. The temptation is to hide and to pull away from community, but what Jesus models here is something totally different. Here's my question for you as we start out. Who are you doing this with? Who knows you? Who's got your back? Who are you doing life with? Who are you sharing the stuff of what's really going on in your inner world with? We can't go it alone. We need community around us. It's what Jesus taught and it's what Jesus modeled with his own life. The next thing to highlight here is that at Jesus' hour of greatest need, he pursued prayer. Now that's very simple to say, but it's quite profound really. We've already highlighted that when Jesus is experiencing this moment of suffering, he didn't pull away from people. And what this shows is that he doesn't pull away from God either. He, in fact, he pushes in. 
Eugene Peterson says he covers the same ground. That shortcut for the fact that he was praying the same thing again and again and again. I, went, I bet it went something along the lines of, help me! We just love to kind of almost, you know, present G- Disney Jesus. You've heard me talk about that. He just kind of floats into the garden, falls to his knees and tilts his head and says this kind of prayer that just we just like, we put up there and put up there. This is a very real, authentic human moment. And that is so incredibly refreshing. Jesus shows us again and again and again, repeatedly, what it means to be human, what it means to be real. He knows that his friends are important. We've already covered that. But he knew that his father's presence was the the greatest need of his soul. I love that, you know, he doesn't busy himself in this moment. He doesn't say, well, you know, my, my time is up, so I need to make sure I do one last final sweep of mission around the city or around the countryside. Or in this moment, he's not trying to fill the space with endless activity. He's pushing into his Father. He's pursuing prayer. And he knew that one word from the Father would be better and bring greater, deeper comfort than thousands of friends would. But I want us to, in moving on, I want us to be a little bit more forensic and pick the the prayer that Jesus prays apart a little bit more. If you've got it open in front of you, why not cast your eye over it again? This amazing, vulnerable prayer is captured in such clarity for us. Verse 39, stand out words. Jesus is declaring and affirming the words, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Abba, we know, is the word for Daddy. Daddy. In this moment of vulnerability, of suffering, where he's crushed by grief, he's pushing into the Father, and he's affirming and proclaiming who God is. Instead of pulling away, He anchors himself in God's love. And maybe one of the harder things to point out at this point, but one of the most essential things to say, is that there is no blame going on here. He's not pointing his finger. There's no narrative of, Jesus, God, Father, if you loved me, you wouldn't ask me to do this. There's no narrative of God. If you really loved me, Father, if you were really for me, you would know that this is impossible for me. I can't do this. Why are you asking me to go through this? But the Father, Jesus doesn't pray like that. It's just phenomenal. Jesus doesn't question God's love. God's love is not up for debate in this moment of pain for Jesus. The existence of suffering, and this is crucial for our thinking as we we grow and develop as Christians. The existence of suffering, the experience of um, uh, unanswered prayer, does not mean an absence of God's love. That's crucial for our thinking. And then he continues with these incredible words. Abba Father, he says, everything, he continues, everything is possible for you. 
So having affirmed God's love, Jesus now affirms God's power. I know, in, I, you know, I have to be honest with you here, okay? In my own life, when I'm scared, and when I'm hurting, and when I'm grieving, most of the time I let myself get swung into this, these first two temptations. Most of the time I find myself asking, God, if you loved me, you wouldn't have taken my father. God, if you loved me, you wouldn't have taken my friend. God, if you loved me, you wouldn't ask me to do this. Why do I have to suffer like this? And invariably, I end up going on to the second temptation. If you were really all-powerful, you could do something about this. If you were so powerful, this wouldn't be happening. And we downgrade God's power. We think, I guess this is just too big for you. It's too difficult for you. That must be the reason why you're not acting. Either you don't love me, or you're, too, you're not powerful enough. I have people, I have non-Christians tell me those kind of things all the time. They think I'm crazy. Most people I meet, I think I am nuts for being a pastor. They think it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to them. But Jesus doesn't sound off like that, does he? In a moment of, gr of, of great suffering, he affirms God's love. Abba. And he affirms God's power. Everything is possible with you. And he goes on to pray one of the most surprising things that we can see anywhere in the scriptures. He goes on to say, take this cup from me. Basically, this is shorthand for, I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer. Jesus is modeling, thinking back what I said earlier about honesty, he's modeling radical honesty and vulnerability here. It's so um, challenging. The bottom line being that whatever moment of unanswered prayer we have to face, it is essential to be honest about where we're really at, not pretending everything's okay when it's really not. God can handle your grief and your pain. He can handle your questions in the middle of the night. It doesn't worry him or faze him in the slightest. In the face of threat and loss and disease and isolation and pain of answered, unanswered prayer, we're called to walk the path of Jesus and echo his prayer in our, in, in our lives. Eugene Peterson captures it perfectly. He says, you, Lord, what you want. It's powerful. We're called to be intentional with our friends, to build community. We're called to pursue prayer and people who pray with us. If you think that dialogue is about trying to find people that Jesus can pray with, he didn't want to pray alone. We're called to anchor ourselves in the love of God and the power of God and to pursue that mentally. It's almost something we need to claim daily. I know that you're good. I believe, I trust that you're for me and that you'll make sense of this at, one, at some point. And we're called to practice vulnerability. These five things, I think, give us incredible insight into what it is that the Lord is asking of us as we wrestle with unanswered prayer and find ourselves in places of suffering. But while 
Mark 14 teaches, uh, sorry, Matthew 26 teaches us that Abba Father is our loving God and that everything is possible for him, which means that he is all-powerful. It doesn't speak directly to our wrestle with what has to be one of the hardest theological questions there is. Why? Why, God? If God is all-loving and all-powerful, why doesn't he stop people from suffering? If God is, all, is God is good and God is powerful, why does evil exist? Why are there prayers that go unanswered? The whole area of Christian thought that covers these questions and others like them is called theodicy. Essentially helping us to navigate our way through to what our, suffer, our theology for suffering really is. As you can well imagine, there are no easy answers to these painful questions. And I'm not going to frustrate any of you by trying to have a cheap shot, but the focus I want to give us in response to them and in light of what we've just thought about in Jesus' life is to uncover one thing this morning with us, if that's okay. The focus, the thing I want to uncover is the, the dangerous assumption that God always gets his way. Did you hear that? That's the thing that I want to focus on this morning. The dangerous, even toxic assumption that God always gets his way. And I want to almost critique that type of theodicy, which is called blueprint theodicy, which is the, hence the image on the screen. And I want to take a few moments to critique that with you. And this could be another place where I rub people up the wrong way. Now remember, grace. All nod your heads, grace. This way of thinking, this way of doing theology is called blueprint theodicy. Basically, the idea being that if something goes wrong, or if someone is not healed, if breakthrough doesn't happen, if some natural disaster occurs, that it's somehow God's will. That it's part of God's plan for us, our lives, and the world. And this way of thinking can be neatly summed up in the catchphrase, God ordains all that comes to pass. God ordains all that comes to pass. Or maybe a more contemporary and not even, not even Christian way of rephrasing this is, everything happens for a reason. Maybe you've heard that. Everything happens for a reason people will often say. You would be surprised by how many Christians defend this way of thinking and put a lot of their time and effort into it. A few years back, a friend of ours, her fiancé was killed in a road traffic accident. He was driving home from work one night and he fell asleep at the wheel. And he hit the only signpost on that side of the motorway for miles and miles and miles. We were absolutely devastated. 
Her pastor at the funeral said, God took him because he needed another angel. He had no idea how devastated, how devastating that was for her and her family. We knew because she was bawling her eyes out at our kitchen table, pounding her hand on the table as the pain left her body. God took him because he needed another angel. That was a pastor that said that. Another example of blueprint theodicy in action is a story, another friend of mine, he's a, he's a pastor, he told me of a woman in his church who was diagnosed with a, um, a life-threatening blood disease. She had already suffered for years with an excruciating nerve disorder. And in an attempt to encourage her, people in the life of the church, as they gathered around her, said, God knows what he's doing, even if you don't. His ways are not our ways. Well, he had a similar conversation at his kitchen table with this lady. as She just couldn't, her heart was broken. Why would God inflict me with this kind of pain? Is that what God wants for me? Another example is um, of blueprint worldview is what we would have heard over the airwaves expressed in different ways, whether it's the internet or on the social media front or on the news. Religious spokespeople around the time of the 9-11 tragedy claiming that it was God punishing America for its sin. The thousands and thousands of people that lost their lives, all the other people whose lives were massively affected from a health reason because they were down at the, the tower trying to save people, that was, all, that was God's plan. God willed that. Does that really stack up for you? It doesn't stack up for me. What about the Oma bombing in 1998? What about my brother's death? What about the concentration camps in World War II? What about the, um, the, the tsunami in 2004? 225,000 people from 12 different countries died that day. Was that the hand of God? Everything happens for a reason. Really? Is that what we believe? Was that the hand of God? There has to be a better answer than that. Blueprint Theodicy, in my humble opinion, has a lot to answer for and has created a world of pain in different people's lives and in my own. But I believe that there's another way to wrestle with all of this. Another way of seeing the world and our place in it, if we're willing to enter into it and hold our heads up. The point I want to leave you with today, if there's one thing that you go home with from our time together, let it be this. God doesn't always get his way. The very fact that sin exists at all proves this. If, if anything, what does the narrative, the creation narrative in the book of Genesis aim to tell us about this? That a serpent is there in the garden. God can't always get his way. Each of us exercise the free will that he has afforded, each in our own way. 
Along with that, if you think about the words that Shane opened our gathering with this morning, invariably we find ourselves praying, Thy will be done. The reality being that it demonstrates that there is a severe danger of God's will not always being done. And we need to pray that it does happen. The fact that his commandments are broken proves that his will is often prevented. And we say that again and again and again throughout the scriptures. And we see this one place in particular that I wanted to kind of just take a snapshot example from was the book of Daniel, chapter 10. What we're told is that Daniel is fasting and praying and an angel comes to him and says, Daniel, I'm sorry. As soon as you started praying, I set out from where I was, but I've only been able to come to you now because I've been opposed by other spiritual powers. The point being that God's will, God's desire to respond positively to our prayers is opposed and resisted at times, and his ability to help us gets hampered as a result. Now, forgive me for going all Lord of the Rings on you, But whatever language that we're used to using in terms of how we engage with the concept of spiritual warfare, the bottom line is this, folks. There are other forces at work in the world today. We have an enemy that doesn't want us to thrive or flourish as people. He doesn't want us to find our way into healing and wholeness and freedom that comes from a relationship with God which is made possible by Jesus. If our prayers aren't answered and we don't see the kind of breakthrough or healing that we long for, it's not because God isn't powerful enough or because he isn't loving, but that other spiritual powers are at work in the world resisting his will and his renewal of all things. And the Bible as a whole speaks to this reality. We would do well to pay attention to some of the language here and the imagery in the book of Daniel. The scriptures, nowhere do they promise us that if we go God's way, that everything will go our way. They don't promise us that. We cannot assume that whatever happens is the will of God. We cannot assume that God always gets what he wants because it's just not true. And here's the thing. There is a greater truth, a greater truth that we're called as followers of Jesus to live out underneath. Our lives, in fact, all of creation, all that has ever been and all that will ever be, are caught up in a bigger story, the story of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is as much here and at work in our world, but part of it is still yet to come in all of its fullness. And so as God's people, it's essential that we understand that we're waiting. We're waiting in the power of the Spirit as community, as family, for God to finish everything he started in Jesus. That's our story. That's our hope. We're waiting for God the Father to finish what he started in Jesus. Jesus came to ensure 
that the suffering we experience now doesn't have the final say. That's what the cross is all about. Ensuring that the way things are now in the world because of the fall don't have the final say. And what Jesus began on the cross, he will again, when he returns, he will complete what he started that day. That's our story. That's our hope. And this is the dynamic tension that we live out from underneath as Christians today. The now and the not yet of, the God's, of God's kingdom. That's our story. So prayer can be incredibly powerful. And there are times when it, be, it can be incredibly painful place too. And in the now and the not yet of God's kingdom, his kingdom come and his kingdom coming, we are going to see breakthroughs and times where we see hardship. There's going to be times where we see healing and there's going to be times when we experience loss. But our Abba is with us by the power of the Holy Spirit and he has promised to help us to live the way that he calls us to. He's going to teach us as we walk with him as disciples. He's going to teach us how to draw down the full and future reign of Jesus Christ into our here and now. He's going to show us how to live something of the future in advance, here and now, today, tomorrow, next week, where we live on the streets where we live, in the places that we work and study. He's going to show us and empower us to live in a way that is drawing down on that future full reign of Jesus and bringing it into the here and now. There's moments of tension and then there's moments of breakthrough. There's moments of healing and then there's moments of loss. But I'm curious, in all of this, what is it that you've heard me say? What, what are you going home with today? What's the thing that struck you most? Maybe challenged you the most? Or encouraged you? I want you to turn to your neighbor, one, one person either side of you, or if you want to talk as a three, go for it. What, what stood out to you? What struck you the most? And then we'll come back together in a moment.